point of the sermon, and the point of the sermon is based in the point of the passage. So, Psalm 2 is a really sobering psalm. There's a sobering message to it. But the intent was to sober us up so that we can see not just the judgment, but the redemption that can be found in the work of the sin-bearing Redeemer, Jesus Christ, so that we don't have to bear the consequences of our own sin, all right? So this week is going to be rather heavy too, but it's going to be heavy in a different way. Last week we talked about the danger that we will be in if we try to come up with some sort of vain righteousness on our own apart from God. The psalmist says that we will get, if we do that, wrath, terror, and fury from the one that rules the heavens. That was kind of a vertical type of heaviness that we talked about last week, and we talked about the danger that we can be in with God Almighty himself. But this week, as we open up Psalm 3, we're going to see a different sort of heaviness, a different sort of danger that we might find ourselves in. It's the danger that we can experience on a horizontal basis with other people. This week, David, the psalmist, is going to open up Psalm 3, and we're going to see a different type of heaviness. And he's going to mention again, yet again, that he indeed is in trouble, not with God, but this time he's in trouble with people. So, here's the touch point. Has anyone ever had trouble in their lives? Has anyone ever had conflict with other human beings on the planet, right? In your home, in the workplace, in the family, in the church, or the person sitting in your row, right? Ever had trouble or conflict with these people that we're surrounded by? Of course, of course, right? And so Psalm 3 is going to act like a ramp that will help us offload some of the burden that we might be feeling when we feel that we're in conflict with other people or in danger from them. It will say to us, hey, let me help you with that heavy burden that you are bearing. Let me show you how to appropriately handle life's difficulties with the difficulties of difficult people in your life. Let me help you with that. So there's an acknowledgement of heaviness, but it's a different type of heaviness this week. And so you and I might find ourselves in heavy situations often, but God's word in Psalm 3 is going to connect with us and help us lighten our loads a bit. For that, we should be thankful And so, before we get too far into our Summer in the Psalms series, I think it's important to note something very important, all right? The Psalms are all born out of some sort of context. Many times we can actually see evidence of this at the beginning of each Psalm. Often you'll see some sort of what they call superscription that will briefly tell us about the historical context in which the Psalm was written. But even the ones that don't have any indicators as to why or when they were written, they're still sourced in some sort of real-time event that took place on this planet, on earth. And the Psalms weren't just created in some sort of vacuum to be collected and put into a holy book for encouragement. They're born out of real-life situations. They were a response to something or a call to something. One of the shows that my wife and I got into a while back was the show 24. Anyone ever seen that show? Jack Bauer, anyone? Right? He's like the upgraded version, the modernized version of, of MacGyver, right? So like if he's involved, somehow the world will be safe, right, in, in any situation. At the beginning of each episode of 24, a phrase would appear on the bottom of the screen after the opening sequence of events. 
And this was the phrase that would be there. It would say, events occur in real time. And then you would see a digital clock start to tick. And what the creators of that show were trying to do was to help you, the watcher of the show, understand that the timeline of what was happening on many different fronts was like a real timeline, okay? So at 9.07, one character might be driving a car while another character might be meeting with the president, while another character might be at CTU headquarters trying to solve problems. What they're trying to do is to help you connect what you were seeing with the reality of time. They were trying to get you to feel the pressure of time and ground the story of what you were seeing in reality. The funny thing about that show is like no one ever went to the bathroom and no one ever ate, all right? So... But the premise of the show is amazing, right? It's trying to connect you with what you're seeing, right? So before we get too far into the series on the Psalms, I want to make sure that we connect what has been recorded with real life. This is what we read here is a real, this really happened to somebody. And sometimes we fall into a trap of what I call the dehumanization of biblical characters trap. We dehumanize the things that we read here. And it's actually a very dangerous trap that we can wander into. And if we wander into it, it will actually snap down on us as we read through any biblical narrative. And it will restrict us from being able to step out in real faith like the characters that we read about do. It will snap down on us and it will kill the work of the Spirit on our lives because we'll think, oh, that was a long time or in a place far, far away We'll think that, oh, these people were unique, or they're not like the people of today. We'll think that these people were some sort of old-time superheroes who were able to tap into some innate superpower that helped them in their varied predicaments. The dehumanization of biblical characters trap, if it snaps down on us, we will start to question what we have in common with these people. And if and when we think this way, we place ourselves in the position like it or not, as a skeptic. We're skeptical. We begin to doubt the validity of what we're reading and we fail to see how what we are reading could actually apply to our lives because after all, we're not dealing with reality. It's like we treat the Bible and its contents as if it belongs in some sort of science fiction section of the library. And so when we enter into the biblical narrative with this subconscious assumption that it's not reality, that's very dangerous to be in. So if you're thinking this way this morning, or if you have thought this way, you need to hear me say this, you are in great danger. It's a trap. It's a trap that is set by the enemy of our souls, the adversary, the one who is against us, the one who is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. His first recorded words in the Bible are in the form of a question, right? Did God really say? His intent was to create doubt, and when he succeeded, tragic things happened. And much the same in this day and age, he, like a wisely trained, skillfully deceptive enemy, approaches us as we read from this book, and he questions us, do you really think that that's real? What or what do you have in common with those people that you read about in that book? And we start to become skeptics. 
And so I want to make sure that we attack back on that false line of questioning. Otherwise, what I say for the next 30 minutes or so will either be entertaining or boring, boring right? But it certainly won't be life-changing because we'll be stuck in the dehumanization of biblical characters trap. If you're thinking this way, is this really real? What do I have in common with these people? Listen to me when I say this. These stories are true. Yes, they are based in other parts of the world, but they're not otherworldly. Think about this. Do you know what you have in common with all the people in this book that are from other lands, historical contexts, and cultures? You know what you have in common? You have your humanity. So you already know the most important thing about every biblical character you will ever read about. They're humans. And you know what it's like to be human because you're a human. I think at least most of us are, right? You're human in here, right? I think some of the most encouraging words in the Bible are found in James 5.17. Elijah was a man, how? Just like us. Like James goes out of his way to make, hey, he is real just like you are real. And just like I, James, am real. Elijah was a human and so are you. You are real. You exist in a physical universe. You're not fictional or allegorical. Neither are the humans that we read about in the Bible. Think about this. They had emotions. They had feelings. They had ups and downs, peaks, valleys. They had joys. They had ambitions. They had frustrations. They had struggles with faith and they had fear. They struggled with what you and I struggle with today. They lacked motivation. They were lazy. They felt inadequate. They felt under-resourced at times. They felt impotent. They felt incompetent. Does anybody identify with that? Yes, all of them. Oh, they are real. They're just like me. The people in this book are very real, and their faith was very real. Sometimes I think that when we read narratives from this book, we actually divorce the characters in any given story from reality. But what we need to see here today is that these people were real. And the reason that we're even able to read about them today is because their faith was as real as they were. Their faith drove them to action. And as is the case back then or even right now, When the people of God are moved to action because of faith, guess what? Incredible things happen, and the hand of God is seen. And we want to document it somehow, so we write those things down. Wow. And so this morning, let's not dehumanize what we see taking place in the life of David. We must see that what has been recorded has been recorded in real time. Yes, this was based in another part of the world, but it's not otherworldly. So, all that has been preliminary to the message, all right? And now we actually get into Psalm 3, and we're going to see the pain and the heaviness that resided in David's heart based off of his circumstances. And then we're going to see what he did with that. So let's open up to Psalm 3, and the words will be on the screen, or you can follow along in a copy of the scriptures that you have from Psalm 3. Starts off with the superscription that says this. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? 
Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And then this Hebrew, selah, which means pause, stop, think. You'll see that often in the scriptures. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. And Lord, may you add your blessing to those who read and hear and then seek to put their trust in and exercise great faith in the promises that we see here. Bless us in our study now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we're going to see in the psalm as we work through it is this reality. Here's the reality. Here's the catch point. Being in God's favor isn't always an easy pill to swallow. Just because you find yourself in the dead center of God's will for your life and his favor and his face is shining upon you does not mean that you are immune to hardship. Contrary to what we might want to be the reality, that's just not the reality we see in David's life. The prophet Samuel was instructed by God to go tell David that he would be the king. So in 2 Samuel 7, 8, you get this. Now therefore, said to Samuel, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. So Samuel's instructed by God himself to go tell David this message. David, you are going to be king And yes, I'm sure that that came with plenty of perks. But being a man after God's own heart also came with many challenges. And he wasn't immune to hardships. And the heartbreaking relational strife that we read about in Psalm 3. Heartbreaking relational strife was normative for David. And we will see that in our passage today, Psalm 3 actually starts off with this phrase. A psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom, or Absalom, his son. What? What in the world? We're not going to take time to read the whole narrative in 2 Samuel that documents the context of the story. But I will quickly summarize it. But instead of starting at the beginning of the story, I think it's would be good for us to start at the end, okay? This is where David found himself. 2 Samuel 15, 14 says this, Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, capital city here, right? Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from Absalom, my son. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So what we see happening here is David is fleeing from his own son. Whoa! 
That makes you wonder what in the world happened to lead up to this point. There must be some sort of backstory that occurred in real time. And if we read 2 Samuel 13 through 18, you would see the unfolding of why Psalm 3 was written. Basically, I just want to show you one graphic here real quick, okay? In summary, the wheels started to come off for David when David's son Amnon assaulted, forcefully molested, and abused his half-sister Tamar. So here we got Amnon abusing his half-sister Tamar. Absalom doesn't like it, wants to defend Tamar, plots to have this guy murdered and killed. He feels a little bit of regret, so he flees to his grandparents, who are not even on the screen, eventually comes back and wins David's favor, but then doesn't feel content with that, and so then he starts to try to overthrow David. Oh my goodness! Tamar's brother Absalom was enraged by his half-brother's sin and eventually had Amnon killed. It was tragic, but it was just the start of dysfunction for David's family. Amnon fled to live with his grandparents. During that long season of waiting, he grew more and more bitter. That murder didn't satisfy him. He wanted more, and he thinks that, man, I need to still get revenge on this. And that demonstrates to me this idea that sin always overpromises and undelivers. So he eventually makes his way back to David, and David welcomes him back with a kiss. You read about that in 2 Samuel 14. So he came to the king, and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king, David, kissed Absalom. He was welcoming him back. But within one chapter of the story, Absalom begins to rally the troops against David to take the throne. We read it in 2 Samuel 15. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He actually tricked 200 men into joining his cause. He even recruited David's own advisors. He amassed an army and then he was prepared to march on Jerusalem. And now we arrive back at the verse that we started this summary that said this, Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. I looked up the definition of dysfunctional family this week. This is what I found. A dysfunctional family, according to 21st century Google, is a family in which conflict, misbehavior, and often child neglect or abuse, and sometimes even all the above, are occurring. Hmm. If you ever thought that your family had some sort of unique drama, it probably does. And so do all the other messed up families that you know. What do I mean by messed up families? All of us. Sin, when introduced, brings disorder and dysfunction. I do want to acknowledge that some of you have some really, really messed up family situations and that you're dealing with and you're, you have very heavy hearts today. But really, all of us have some sort of dysfunction in our families. You see it in King David's family, like trying to chart that thing out is a, it's hard. 
But Psalm 3 is going to give us a template to contemplate and to offload our heavy sorrows onto God's strong and capable shoulders. Let's look at what David did when he was faced with dysfunction, destruction, and even death. The first thing that he does is he acknowledges the difficulty. He just he acknowledges it. Hey, this ain't good. <laughs> Look what he says. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. He doesn't just bury his head in the sand. He didn't just bury his head in the sand and paint on a fake plastic smile on his face and pretend that everything is hunky-dory. What we see here is David admitting to the reality of hardships in his life, and yet he expresses confidence in God in the midst of them. In the midst of the turmoil, he turns to God. Notice the first words in the text, O Lord. He goes to God in his difficulties, and he doesn't run from God. And in this way, he begins the process of what is known in the Bible as lamenting. The process of lamenting our circumstances properly is a great expression of faith, actually. And we're going to talk more specifically about that as we go through the Psalms. We'll get into it initially in Psalm 5 in a few weeks. Here in Psalm 3, we say David turning to God. Instead of running away from God when things get hard. When we turn to God during our hardships, instead of running away from him, we're actually demonstrating a bedrock belief that we believe that he is interested and invested in our lives. When we go to him, when we turn to him in our hardships, we're actually expressing faith whether you know it or not. And then look what David does next. He just tells it like it is to God. He says, I've got many foes. They're all rising against me. They are all a very real threat to me. And he just tells it like it is to God. He says, he lays all the cards of his heart on the table before God. And he says, look, I've got many foes. It's not just one enemy I'm dealing with. It's a whole host of them. He says many three times in the passage. And there's a touching point for us, right? So often we feel overwhelmed with life because of multiple things that are coming at us at once. If it was just one thing, we might be able to stand up under it. Or at least we might be able to handle or should be able to handle that, maybe. But when things start to pile up and pile on, it can start to feel overwhelming. David says many three times in these verses. And that indicates to me it wasn't just one thing or one person that he was up against. He was dealing with a whole bunch of stuff all at once. And look what those foes are bringing at him. Look at what those foes are saying. There is no salvation for him in God. David, who had turned to God, is being mocked by his foes, saying, hey, no solution while you're looking. Basically, these foes of David are saying to David, even God himself can't save you from what we're about to bring at you, David. David, your God is inadequate for what we are about to come at you with. Now that's intimidating. When the situations that you are in feel 
like they are mocking the ability of your God, that can be some pretty dark times in your life. Sometimes the odds can feel so overwhelming, and you may have thoughts in your mind that say, you know what, person in this situation, want you think this way, your God can't help you with this. Even your God can't help you with what you're dealing with right now. Sometimes we can find ourselves in situations that seem to mock God's ability to intervene or be used for him by, his good, by good for him. And actually, this is something that we see all throughout the biblical storyline. Oftentimes, God's people were mocked for simply doing what God wanted them to do. They found themselves in the center of God's will for their lives, and yet it was very hard, and they found themselves in nearly insurmountable situations unless God showed up, and they were mocked in the process. That's the biblical storyline. So think of Noah and his boat. Think of Nehemiah and his walls. Think of King Hezekiah and the mocking Assyrians. Think of people actually saying to our blessed Savior, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you come down off the cross? Jesus found him in the dead center of the will of God for his life, and he's on a cross, and people are mocking him. If you really are God, your God can't save you. You're not God. Come down from the cross. So if you're in hard circumstances and they're causing you to question God's ability to sustain you through them, guess what? You are in good company. Don't run from God. Go to God and tell him what you are feeling. Didn't, that's what Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I feel forsaken I think we would all agree that Jesus went through some hard stuff just to follow the directives of his father. And do you know what he did? 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't run from him. He ran to him and said, okay, I'll do it. I, tr- I will entrust what I'm going through. Even when everybody else is mocking me for it, I will entrust myself to you. He turned to God and he acknowledged the difficulty just like David did in Psalm 3. He acknowledges the difficulty and then what does he do next? He acknowledges the only source of help. He acknowledges the reality that there's only one source that might be able to help him. And this is what he says, but you, O Lord. He started off by saying, O Lord, here's my situations. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I laid down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This is amazing to me. Don't divorce this from reality. This is, this is what David counts. This is what he chronicles. This is the situation that he's in. And it's amazing to me that these verses are here immediately following verses 1 and 2. 
these verses here are evidence of nothing short than a spiritual miracle that must have taken place in David's heart. It's a miracle of faith. In these verses, David has confidence in God regardless of the mockery that was coming at him. Look at what he says. He reminds himself of truth. Well, what truth is that? What did he remind himself? This truth, that God is a shield. Not only is he a shield, but he is a shield about me. He doesn't say, God, you are a shield in front of me. He says, God, you are a shield about me. And here's the difference. A normal shield will protect from one direction and one direction only. But the shield that David talks about is a shield on every side. David is vulnerable nowhere. He is protected everywhere. By God himself who is shielding David and nothing can penetrate the protection provided by the all-powerful one. He is providing protection from every side and that means that David is okay even in the midst of the hardships. And the means of that protection is God's glory. Look at what it says. My glory We have talked about this word before, glory. It's God's kavod. It's his overwhelming presence, his heaviness, weightiness of God is with him. Even while David is being mocked, I think this is the Old Testament equivalent or version of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's like we got this big shield. We're vulnerable nowhere, protected everywhere by the all powerful one. This reality takes root in David's heart and the result is that his head is lifted. Look at what it says. You're the lifter of my head. In the midst of this apparent defeat, he doesn't hang his head in shame. When he's being mocked, he doesn't feel like he's defeated. Even if he feels like he's defeated, he reminds himself of truth. You're the lifter over my head. And he raises his head with the confidence and assurance that God is God. And that means his foes are not. And that results in David's ability to experience something that eludes so many of us. And we find it in verse 5, and that is rest. Rest. Look at this. I lay down and slept. What a blessed gift from God that is. In David's own words, it's a real physical rest. He actually says, I'm going to close my eyes here. He testifies that he laid down and he slept even though there were over a thousand surrounding him. The circumstances didn't matter even though they loomed large. In David's mind, God was larger, and he was providing a barricade of protection, like a shield from every side. And so David reminds himself of that truth, and then he reasons, why not just go to sleep and let him do what I would fail miserably at doing if I tried on my own, and that is rest. He says, he's sustaining me through this long night. 
And I honestly think that we can allegorize this for us a little bit as well. I think we're meant to. Guess what? You are incapable of solving all the problems in your world. But so often we try and we try and we try and we get exhausted in the process. It would be much better to simply remain faithful to loving God and loving neighbor as ourselves and let God do the rest. We simply need to go to God, go to Jesus, and find rest for our souls. This is what we see David doing in these verses. He's reaping the benefits of going to the only one who could provide any source of help. And so may we, in our difficulties as well, do the same. He acknowledges the difficulties. He acknowledges, look, I'm powerless to do anything about this. I can only entrust myself to you. You're the only source of help. And then finally, in verses 7 through 8, he asks for deliverance. He asks. He just simply asks. He says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. David recognizes that all of his own self-effort and for self-preservation and salvation is in vain. He already acknowledges that he's in over his head and he acknowledges that God is the only one with any ability to help him. And so now he simply asks God to do something about Absalom, his own son, who is aggressively breathing down his neck. God, would you do something about this? Would you do something about this? God, can you do something about this? David could have taken a play out of Absalom's playbook. David could have played the aggressor, and he could have went on the attack, but he didn't. He just let God do the defending. And sometimes we think that our only option is to play the aggressor like Absalom. We try to take things by force or try to manipulate or pressure people into caving into our will. But David refuses to take that route. David says, instead of me breaking their teeth, let's let the Holy One of Israel do that. And so he actually asks, boldly asking God to defend him in a way that will be painful and undeniably effective. He says, arise, save me. Save me by hitting them square in the cheek and breaking their teeth. Whoa. That got real. He says, I could swing a fist, but it won't be effective. Let's let God do that. Wow. The tables have turned in the psalm. David was being sought after, and now David's enemy is being sought after by God because David asked for it. The confidence that David has in God by the end of this psalm, I love it. I love this. Look at this. What were David's enemies saying at the beginning of verse 2? Or the end of verse 2? There is no salvation for him in God. And what does David confidently say here at the end of the psalm? He says the opposite. He says... Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people, Selah. <laughs> his circumstances hadn't changed, but his perspective had. He says, salvation belongs to my God. I don't think that David, at the time of writing this, was delivered yet, but David fully anticipated a future deliverance that only the Lord could bring about. If that's not a foreshadowing of Christ, I don't know what is. And David says that in the midst of his situation, 
that included many foes, God's blessings were upon him. And not only him, but they are available for all of God's people throughout time, even up to the very moment of your difficulty and adversity. So from this psalm, we see David acknowledging his difficulties, recognizing his only real source of help is to face the difficulties, is from asking God to be involved, asking for the deliverance while receiving the real-time blessings of being able to lie down and rest and wake again to face another day where he would be sustained yet again and upheld by the one who could strike the cheek and break the teeth of his foes. Day by day, by day. And the same goes for you and I as we sit here today. And so to that I say, may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray and we'll sing together about how God defends us and protects us and is always with us in the midst of our difficulties and hardships. God, we pray that as we sing, as we remind ourselves of these truths in your word, we thank you for the real life experience of David, even though he found himself in the dead center of your will for his life, it was not immune to hardships and difficulties, yet he turned to you instead of running away, he asked for you to deliver him, and he expressed great faith, which is evidence in the fact that he was able just to be at rest for another day, day by day. You sustained him through the long night of this season of his life. And God, I pray that we would do the same, that you would be our defender, that you'd be our savior, that you would be our king, that our circumstances or those that are against us would not, even if they're mocking your ability to intervene, God, may we not cave into that deception. May we believe that you are the worthy son of God to be praised and lifted high in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.